Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as I said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 46 today. And this is truthfully one of my favorite psalms. And the reason for that is actually many. Uh, there's incredible amount of encouragement. It's a triumphant psalm. And the reason for this is because it ultimately lifts up God in all his sovereignty but it calls us to trust in that. It calls us to trust him in the midst of the chaos of life, and namely the fact that he is actually with us. And that's an incredibly precious thing. At the end of all days, though, this psalm reminds us that that outcome is set. It's secure. We have nothing to lose hope in. If God is our God, inevitably, the psalmist here portrays that we will not be moved. Even if all the earth and everyone in it are turned upside down, if you will, everything's thrown to into complete chaos and disarray, ultimately, the people of God will still stand strong. While we don't know the particular situation that this psalm arises out of, this is the embodiment of all it teaches. What we do know, though, is that these people are facing an immediate threat from enemies who wish to come in and simply kill them. They are pressed on every side. They are holed off in the city of Jerusalem, and the battle is actually very real. And yet in the midst of that time, they remain a people of utmost confidence. The basis of their confidence is ultimately God himself, as we will see today. Particularly, though, what they look at is the fact that God is moving all things in time and space toward his inevitable outcome, toward their final end, where sin, Satan, and death will ultimately be done away with and no more. It's incredibly triumphant and hopeful. They know in the middle of this battle where they potentially might die, that one day all of their foes will be put to rest. All of warfare itself will be put to rest. There is a certain hope that one great day, all these things will be a distant memory in the people of God's minds as God reigns on earth. And yet the truth it gives to them in the midst of this is that there's confidence to be had in the midst of their plight. In other words, it's not just as far off hope for them to reach out to and, and hope that at the end of all days, everything will work out. No, in the midst of that battle, they actually have an incredible amount of hope that God will be faithful and protect them that day. The outcome is so secure. In fact, they actually see it as a present reality. He is so faithful to his covenant, they look upon his future promises and say this gives an immediate confidence and hope that God will be faithful to them now. We not only look forward to that end of all days, if you will, for the believer, but essentially what they're arguing for here is that in the midst of the warfare now, God will be triumphant. God will be king. And he says, therefore, in the midst of all chaos, we do not fear. That's an incredible message, isn't it? And we see this in three different circumstances throughout this psalm, but the hope of it is incredible. They do not fear, for one, because God is their refuge and strength in the midst of all natural disaster. And so whatever happens on this earth, they do not fear. Secondly, they do not fear because God is their confidence and help in the midst of all political and social disaster or man-made disaster. And third and finally, they do not fear because God is the sovereign one. His mighty hand of judgment is already poised over all of creation, and the outcome is secure. It is merely a matter of time between now and then in which not only they will see the outcome as secure, but we too, where that judgment is realized in full. That's the basic message of this psalm. That's the hope that's driving all of it. That is the reason why they do not fear is because they know in the midst of everything, God is sovereign and working all things toward his final end. So look with me now as we start to make our way through this psalm, and we can see this verse by verse. And first of all, I want to point out verse 1, where it just depicts God as our refuge and strength amidst natural disaster. The, the sections break up very, very cleanly, by the way. Each instance where you see the word Selah in this psalm is another break in the psalm. So that's how we're going to break it up today. Verses 1 through 3, 4 through 7, and then finally 8 through 11. 
So in the first section, verses 1 through 3, it deals with this aspect of natural disaster. Notice he says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Again, he immediately begins with this rally cry of confidence, but notice that it's in who God is and what he has always been found to do. In other words, it's what's found to be true of God in all of time. Notice he uses three different descriptions, and he brings the Israelites to trust in their God by this. So look with me at verse 1. He says, God is our refuge, God is our strength, and then thirdly, God is our very present help in trouble. The first two describe God himself, and the third describes his activity and his faithfulness to this activity. Now, first, again, he says God is our refuge. Well, in this, he's simply stating that God is the one who is the sure place of protection when all else in life fails. In one sense, you can say that God is our place of shelter amidst any troubles that life has to bring. But here, again, remember, this is in the context of war. So he's saying in the midst of war, God is our refuge. And what he's drawing attention to is the fact that though they may have people surrounding them on all sides, ready to kill them, God is nonetheless their place of safety. God shall keep them safe from the attack of their foes, and he will ultimately defend them. But what's more than this is God is not merely on the defensive for his people. He's actually on the attack. He actually helps them in the midst of the battle. And this is where he turns to the second description. Notice he says God is our strength. Well, here the idea is not that they have some sort of inner resolve that they draw from in the midst of this time, but that God is actually the one who supplies their strength. The point he makes is relatively simple then. It's it's in the midst of impending doom that God actually provides his people with a source of strength, that is himself. He is the very source of their strength. Those who are united with him, in other words, are not left to their own devices or their own efforts or their own ability to stand and fight off and stave off their foes. No, God is the one who gives them such strength. Because they are united with God and he is on their side and he is in their midst, he empowers them to go out to battle. When everything else seems to fall apart at the seams, God leads the charge, in essence, at the very head of the line and subdues his enemies by giving his people a portion of his own strength. That's what's being referred to here. Now, notice the third description. Again, it's in the midst of impending doom, but that he is a very present help in trouble. This is simply a summary statement of the two before in some ways, but it's designed to say, once more, God is their refuge and strength, but in a way that actually intensifies it. It makes it more... I don't want to say eager, but it makes it more intense and stresses the importance of what he's saying here. If you were to translate the Hebrew in a literal sense, you would say simply something like this. God has always been found to be an exceeding abundant source of help in the midst of our trouble. I mean, just piling on the adjectives here, exceedingly abundant source of help. In other words, he is always what help is all about. He's simply reminding them, God has always been faithful to Israel. God has always been their defender. He has always prepared them for victory in battle because of his covenant. In the long line of their history, what he's saying here essentially is that God has always been faithful to his covenant. His faithfulness is unparalleled. In that one little line, I mean, just imagine these people on the front lines encouraging one another with a testimony of all that God has done. They're saying that basically, God has always stepped up to the plate and he has always knocked it out of the park. He's always delivered. And so the rallying cry for these men is that as they go out to the battle, it's much the same as the Apostle Paul's, where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's what these guys are essentially saying here. In all of it, the psalmists, the sons of Korah, are reminding the people or are encouraging to look back and see that the mighty character of God and his awesome works have always been accomplished for the sake of his people and his glory. They are truly in the midst of a time of great distress and trouble. They're not pretending as if things are better than they are. They are recognizing everything around them in the situation it is is actually bad. I mean, they have likely some people like the Assyrians who are just excellent at warfare ready to kill them. Now, the term trouble actually suggests a sense of anxiety or a binding or dread as if you would be held in a straitjacket. That's the idea here. It's not just, my tummy is a little rumbly because I'm upset. It's no, it's you're literally in a bind and that everything is going wrong. They are utterly helpless and powerless and vulnerable. And yet the language is so triumphant. 
And the simple reason for this is that these guys are actually crazy enough to believe that God is on their side and he is their refuge in the midst of this kind of time. The reality that the psalmist is portraying for us is that in legitimate times of doom, and I mean actual doom, there is no source, and I mean hear me on this, no source of strength, defense, or help outside of God. Absolutely nothing. And yet they see this as a thing that brings them profound comfort. Profound comfort. Notice they don't place a shred of trust in their own ability. They don't place a shred of trust in weapons. They don't place a shred of trust in other men, nor in false gods. All of it is based on who God is and what he has done. In other words, it's an informed faith. It's a faith grounded upon what God has revealed to them, not only in the word, but in their history. They recognize, though the world is filled with absolute chaos, God is above the chaos. He is the one who brings order in the midst of the chaos. What is chaotic to us, in other words, is not chaotic to the God who reigns above all chaos. He is in full control, and this is a thing that if we apprehend the actual reality behind it, it is a profound comfort in the midst of a world that is filled with disaster. I mean, look around this world. It is absolutely breaking apart at the seams half the time. And yet, if God were not sovereign, would you have any reason to hope? Would you have any reason at all? This is where he's driving towards here. Notice now what he says in in 2 through 3. Look down with me at the text. He says, therefore, that is in light of this fact, in light of the fact that God is a very present help in trouble, that he is our refuge and strength, We will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, we will not fear. The depiction here is, again, of just complete world-ending chaos brought on by natural disaster. Just notice how vivid the language is. All of these describe a sort of cataclysmic or world-ending natural disaster where things are literally just, everything that was once stable is just falling apart. The earth is being broken up and distributed like pieces of bread across the face of the planet. The geographical boundaries that they all know so well no longer apply. The nations have been broken up. The mountains are tumbling down into the heart of the sea. So once mighty mountains, once seen as a source of immovable strength that towers over everything else in all of creation, are reduced to rubble that just simply cascades into the heart of the sea, never to be seen again. I mean, that's, that's pretty big stuff. The waters even. Well, I mean, water is always seen as a source of life, if you will. You live by water because you need it, otherwise you die. But he's saying that everything is rushing and raging, the chaos of it. The water is being, you know, basically pummeled by the rocks falling into it. So everything's spilling over the surface of the earth. It's devouring whatever lay in its path like a tsunami. But the idea is that these things, even the waters, are no longer seen as a source of life, but sheer, utter chaos, great peril and death. All of them speak to the reality that these once stable things, these once life-providing things, have become upended. Complete disorder. Complete chaos. And he's not saying this has actually happened in their time. He's saying this is the worst case scenario, if they will. Even if all of this happens, he says, we will not fear. Though everything could fall into the heart of the sea, though the earth itself can be split in two, We will not tremble. It's designed, again, to lift up the worst-case scenario and demonstrate just how safe and secure they are in the grasp of their God. He is in their midst, and they shall not be moved. Again, he's speaking to the reality that there's no reason to fear if we are safe with God. That's the natural conclusion of the theology of verse 1. We have no reason to fear because God is our refuge and strength. He is always about the business of helping his people, always. And so we have no reason to fear. It's just he's piling everything on top of one another. The question then is simply, do you and I believe that? Do we truly believe the objective truth of who God is and in such a way that it actually promotes an attitude in which we do not fear? Would we be able to say, along with them, that if everything we know is stable, everything that we have been taught to trust in our whole lives, if all of that bombed into the heart of the sea, would we still say, we shall 
not fear. There's an implied rebuke here, and it's not so subtle, is it? But it speaks to both who are ruled by their fears, but also those who have a misplaced confidence and hope. A misplaced confidence and hope, but also those who are ruled by their fears. Right? You have some who are they're confident for all the wrong reasons. They don't fear anything, but it's not because they draw their strength and comfort from God himself. It's not because they look to him for their protection. It's because they are utterly self-sufficient. They're deceived into thinking that when everything goes wrong, they have the ability to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and basically stand strong. When everything else falls apart at the seams, they are the ones that they believe will be left standing. Well, the reality is that they're just they're in the same dangerous position as the one who fears. Then you have others who have no fear because they believe their protection and strength come through the things that this world has to offer. All the things that are promised to burn up in fire at the end of the age, by the way. They believe, much like the one who believes in himself, that these things have the capability of keeping them safe on the day of judgment. They believe, or perhaps maybe they don't believe that in full, but what they believe is that in the midst of a world that's utter chaos, that these things will be a cure-all or a panacea from depression or anxiety or or whatever else that you want to throw into it. Perhaps even that they will hold back the power of death if they just eat right or exercise enough or take all of the right things into their body or if they put their hope in money and shelter and everything else that's all in creation, they bank their trust on these things. The reality is that these people are in just as dangerous territory as the one who fears and the one who trusts in themselves. And then, of course, the one who fears. Perhaps they fear man. Perhaps they fear the various what-ifs that arise from living in a world that is broken and distorted by sin. But they never quite get around to letting the knowledge of who God is transform their hearts and minds so that they actually abide in a place of trust. All three of those people, by the way, fail to place their faith in the objective reality of who God is. That's the rebuke here. He's literally looking at the people surrounded by enemies, and he's saying, trust in the Lord. He is your one source of comfort and strength. He is your one source of deliverance. He is your one source of hope. That's all that you have. In evidence of what we see today, when somebody is given to a misplaced confidence or, or hope, when they're given to fear, it's all indicative of a false understanding of just that reality. It's not to say they, they can't have the facts right and still struggle. I mean, believe me, people, everybody still does that in one sense or another. It is to say, though, that we may have all the facts right, we may even agree to those facts, but it has not become a place of, of hope, if that makes sense. It has not become a treasure or a delight. It has not become something that literally rules all of our life. The knowledge of God is, is literally intended to permeate every single corner of our lives. It's, it's the basis of our confidence. It's the basis of our hope and joy and delight. It's the basis of literally all that we feel and do. It is to be brought under submission to the word of God, and it is to be brought under submission to who God is. I mean, it's the same basis of what we believed when we heard the gospel for the very first time. We must submit ourselves to who God is and not who we believe him to be. The pity of it is that we we tend to take that and then we hear that it's a thing of simply strong faith. It's something that somebody else is all reserved to have. Only a select few people can embody that kind of mentality. But notice for the Israelites here, the intensity of their faith rests on the object of their faith. It's God himself, beloved. It's God himself which brings them strength and comfort. It's God himself who is their refuge. It is not themselves. The reason they can say they will not fear, even if all the world is to break apart at the seams, is only because they take God at his word. God has said, he is in full control. God has said, you are my people, God has said, I am your God. In all of it, they believe him. They believe him. They rest confidently knowing he actually protects them, knowing that he strengthens them, knowing that he is their help in time of need, not something else or somebody else. 
And so the principle for us is really much the same if you, if you boil it down to its irreducible qualities. We need not fear the chaos of a broken and distorted world. Why? Because God is our delight. God is the one who stands above all of the chaos of this world. He is the one who brings order. At the end of it all, God is the immovable one. Right? Everything else can tumble into the heart of the sea, but God is the one who stands not you, not me, not whatever else that we are tempted to place our trust and hope in. It is God and God alone. Nothing in creation will stand when he lifts up his voice and melts the earth in a second. The entire world can fall into chaos, and yet the one who will never fall victim to that is God. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, when you really grab that and wrap your mind around it, when everything else is just literally falling apart, God is still stable. Though the mountains fall, God is the one who stands. Though the earth may shift, God is the one who remains unfazed. Though the seas roar and they devour all that is in their path, God is the one who commands even the wind and the waves, and they obey him. Nothing can stop God from being a source of stability and strength to his people in the midst of their need. Absolutely nothing. That's the encouragement here. But the psalmist doesn't stop here. He's not merely looking at natural disasters or natural reality, if you will, and saying that God is the source of strength in our place of refuge in the midst of that. He now looks at it as the political world, if you will. He now says that in the midst of all the social and man-made chaos in verses four through seven, that God is still your place of safety and refuge. He is your place of confidence and help. So look at verse four. We're gonna start to see this reality now unfold. Again, all of it's still based on the not fearing, right? So he says, at verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the most high. <clears throat> Notice he begins by drawing attention to this place called the city of God or the dwelling places of the most high. Now, I'm gonna spend just a very brief moment drawing this out for you, but it's actually rather important. So Psalm 87, you don't need to flip there, so just listen. It's another Psalm from the sons of Korah. And we find they also, in that psalm, speak of this city of God. They refer to it by another name in the same text. They call it Zion. Now, elsewhere, this city is also called the city of David. And as you might simply refer to it or know to it as, Jerusalem. So why do I bother to to just bring that out all quickly here? Well, Jerusalem is the epicenter of all of Israel. It is the place where God dwelled uniquely among them. It is the place where he was physically present with them. And the reason that he was present with them was simply because of the covenant he swore with the patriarchs. So in all of it, what they're looking at is that this place where they're holed off in, where people are coming to battle them and kill them, this place is the place where God resides. And while you and I might not pick up on the, the details of it all at first sight, He's alluding to the fact that this most high God, this God who has covenanted with them, that he is the one enthroned above all things, has sworn covenant with them, and again, will not forsake them in their time of need. The point of all this is that they're undergoing extinction from their enemies, but they still look to the promises of God and remind themselves he's unfailing. He's unfailing. He is immovable. He will not be shaken And therefore, we will not be shaken. He is their God. They are his people. And again, he dwells among them, which is a very unique thing in all of history, right? We have the presence of the spirit, but they had God in their midst, in the midst of the tabernacle. We have a better gift, by the way, but it's still something utterly unique in all of history. They remember in the midst of that from from long ago, God had covenanted with them out of all peoples, even though everything might look hopeless, even though their enemies are surrounding them, they have the one ability to say that God is with us. He's not with them. God is with us. They're reminded of his covenant faithfulness in all things through thick and thin. And yet even here, it's a rather ordinary way in which they see it. Notice he says there is a river that makes them glad, them being Jerusalem. Again, there's a river that makes Jerusalem glad. Now, historically speaking, the city of Jerusalem wasn't near any major river. It didn't have any major body of water they could draw from, but it did sit on top of a mountain, and underneath that mountain ran a spring. 
Now the Israelites had taken that and they channeled it all through the city. And this is all just so they could have a fresh source of water, right? This is what you do if you build a city. You want water so you can live and not die. But the idea is that in times of peace and even in times of war, they had a source of water that nobody could touch. When you would attack a city, the first thing that you did was seek to cut off their water supply. People still do this today, by the way, but that's what you want to do. You want to take away their provision of food and water so that way you starve them out and inevitably they come out of the city and you can kill them, enslave them, or whatever else you want to do. But he's saying here, there's a river that's making all these people glad. In the midst of them being surrounded by their enemies, they still have a very fresh source of water which will not run dry. Think of this in in the grand scheme of things. Not only had God promised this land to Abraham and his descendants, not only are they Abraham's descendants and they're seeing this land for themselves and they're living in it for themselves, but long, long ago, God provided a fresh source of water that they could draw from in the midst of a battle. Just one small thing they didn't have to worry about. I mean, that source of water is not going to protect them from the bad guys, if you will. It's not going to stave off the arrows and the spears and everything else that's going to plunge into their hearts. But what it does is continually remind them that God provides. It is a continual reminder that God has not abandoned them. He will fulfill his covenant promises to them. Long ago, he gave them this water. He swore it to them, and then he even placed them on top of it. I mean, that's incredible. When you, it's mind-blowing when you think of the sovereignty of God in the midst of that. But think of that in all those small ways and mercies and provisions that God has given every one of you. I mean, think of that in the midst of hardship where things are bad, right? They're not pleasant. Things, if you were to put it in a word, just stink. And yet God in his infinite kindness and mercy has still directed all of the infinitesimally small things in order to bring you even a modicum of comfort and hope. He is still with you. That's what he's showing you. Think of how wonderful that is. God is still with you, beloved. Even in the midst of the most trying time, your God has not abandoned you. We often think of this and we have a hard time relating to this reality because when we get emotional, we tend to think that God is now distant from us. But look at all the small ways in which he provides. Look at all the small ways in which God has always provided. Look at the word especially. Again, the water supply here can't stop the invading armies. But the God who covenanted with them can. That's the beautiful reality being shown here. The one who sovereignly placed that water supply in their midst, he can save them from their enemies. And just as that water supply is in their midst and it brings them gladness, it shows them his mercy, they orient their hope in the fact that God is with them in the big things. Notice what he now says in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of Jerusalem. She will not be moved. More than this, God will help her when the morning dawns. Notice what he brings to the forefront. It's all of these things he alluded to just previously, right? The God of their forefathers, the God of all creation that's above it all, he's with them. But he adds to it here. They cannot be shaken. Jerusalem cannot be moved. Well, the implication of this is, is quite clear, isn't it? Though everything else might be thrown into chaos, though everything else will ultimately devolve into chaos, those who have God in their midst will remain unmoved. The psalmist pushes us even further when he states that God will help them when the morning dawns. Again, the imagery is incredibly clear, isn't it? The dawning of a new day brings hope. Why does it bring hope? It's very simple. There's light, right? The imagery that's always been lifted up in, in Scripture between light and darkness is all over the place. Right? The darkness symbolizes disaster, death, chaos, all of that. But light symbolizes life. Light symbolizes goodness. Light specifically in the New Testament is Jesus Christ because he brings the light into the world. In the midst of this situation, the darkness here just simply symbolizes their own plight. 
right? They're faced with death. They have people closing in around them. They cannot get out. But God is in their midst. He will help them when the morning dawns. So at the very, very worst, all through the long darkness of the night, they will wake to find that God has not only dwelled with them the entire time, but he actually helps them. He will actually rescue them at the dawn of the new day. It's kind of a wonderful paradox, isn't it? This God who is high above all of creation, the one who stands outside of time and all of reality itself, the one who governs all things, is near. He is near them. He is in their midst. And because he is near to him or them, they shall remain when the battle is done. Well, the people of God are utterly, utterly safe and secure. There's nothing outside of his dominion and authority. He wields infinite power. He charts the course of history like channels of water in his hands. He sits in the heavens enthroned above it all, and nothing, absolutely nothing happens outside of his decree. And yet this all-powerful, all-sovereign God stoops down from his throne and lives among his people, especially in the midst of their trouble. We tend to think that God is aloof to our problems more than half the time, don't we? And this is not a rebuke, so please don't take it that way. We just tend to think God's just distant. He has better things to do than attend to our needs in the midst of trials, or perhaps our, our trials are stupid. That's what we think. We sense he's unreachable, he's distant, and by and large, we equate his nearness to us with our emotional capacity, how we experience or feel about certain things. But the objective reality, the objective reality is that whether or not we feel like it, God is still with us. It doesn't matter how you and I feel, not in the grand sense of things, because it doesn't invalidate the truth of what God is and who he has claimed to be and always been. That's the wonderful truth about all of this. God has always been near to his people. It's not on the basis of how they feel or how they think or how they pray or anything else. It is always on the basis of his covenant. It is always on the basis of his faithfulness, in other words. In the midst of the chaos we find in life where disease and pain and death and natural disaster and even social and political unrest, when all these things take place, the one thing that we should never be tempted to do is think that God has abandoned his people. He's not confused. He's not even disturbed by the events at hand. He's not a God who actually stands idly by either, though. He is, in fact, directing literally all things to the counsel of his will. Every single moment in all of time and space is hurtling towards his desired outcome. We're we're not Israel. We don't face the same reality today, right? There's not people outside of Missio Dei Fellowship right now looking to kill us as we get into our cars, But the principle is exactly the same, exactly the same. God is near to us, both in peace and even adversity. God is sufficient in his grace to us. He never abandons his children. If you are in Christ, you are utterly safe and secure. Nothing can stand against you. Nothing can remove you from his grasp. Nothing Nothing in all of time and space can shake the firm foundation we stand upon for Christ is our rock and redeemer. The confidence of the psalmist is is essentially the same as ours in that regard. God is near to us. We have therefore no reason to fear. Beloved, no reason to fear. If God is with us, what can man do? If God is with us, what can nature do? Are not all things under his divine control? Notice how how certain this reality is. He he starts in this in verse 6. Notice what he talks about with these nations. These are the guys coming in to battle them. He says, the nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. That's God. God raised his voice, and the earth melted. Just melts. The psalmist now just takes us directly into the fray of the battle, but notice how strongly he is contrasted with these warring nations. Notice how the true power of God comes in. The language, it's reminiscent of Psalm 2. He have the nations, they come to war with God himself, and it's just the utter futility of their foolishness. It's shown for what it truly is. They, they rise against their God, 
He is their God still, by the way. They rise against their creator, and he laughs and he scoffs in derision. He declares, my holy one will come, and he will shatter the nations with a rod of iron. The picture here is is very much the same. The nations rage, and in their raging, they may topple lofty kingdoms. They may topple them much like the mountains that fall into the heart of the sea. And yet when they come against Israel, God merely speaks a word. One little word. And all the earth dissolves. Think of how feeble these men are before their creator. Think of how insignificant the greatest armies of all time are before the all-powerful God. Think of the mass destruction people can wield in our day. They can blow up entire regions. They can wipe off entire nations, small nations, but still, they can wipe them off the map. And yet that pales in comparison to the sheer awesome power of God. Think about it this way. Just as easily as God spoke all things into being, he can speak all things out of being. Nothingness. Sheer, awesome, magnificent power. Nothing is like our God. The psalmist at this point is just simply taunting these invading armies. They stand ready to kill him and picture it much like David with Goliath. He says, you come with sword and spear to taunt the armies of the living God. In a moment, with a mere word, God can evaporate you. Who are you, O man? That's really rather neat than what he says in verse 7 in light of this. Going back to the idea of covenant, notice what he says here. He says, the Lord of hosts, that is Yahweh of the heavenly hosts or the hosts of all the earth, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. This God is with us. You can think of the Lord of hosts as a military term in one sense. It conveys the idea that God is the one in control of literally every single army of heaven and earth. Every single one of them. Not only the legions of angels are at his disposal, but even the armies of the earth are at his command. Not not one of them is outside of his control. And that includes even the army that's standing before Jerusalem right now. Imagine hearing that. Imagine being the guys on the opposite side, right? That just flips their war games on their head, doesn't it? Imagine standing before an army poised to annihilate you and shouting triumphantly, if God wishes he can speak a single word to you and decimate you. But perhaps instead, he will simply have you do his bidding and fight his wars. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. What stronghold do you hope in? Again, everything he's doing is framing it in light of the covenant that God has sworn with his people. He's saying that God, the God of Jacob, is their stronghold. What it brings to mind, again, is this reality that the nation of Israel stood out uniquely among all other nations. He covenanted with them and them alone. God promised to keep them safe. He promised to never leave them nor forsake them. He promised to help them in their time of need. He promised to bless those who bless them and to curse those who curse them. Generation after generation of Israel has inherited these promises from the patriarchs. And the reality is that for those who are in Israel, who were truly children of God, they stood to inherit all of these blessings. It was a fool's errand, in other words, to come up against these people. Because God himself, who is the one in control of all things, the one who has every possible resource at his disposal, is the one who protects them. He's ultimately the one who has promised to do so from the time he called Abraham out of Ur and set his grace upon him and his offspring. That's Basically, what he's saying here is, look, you can come up against us, but wait till my dad hears about it, right? I mean, think of that. That's kind of the reality being portrayed here. They're so confident because the God of their covenant is their stronghold, not anything else. He is the one who sets them on this inaccessibly high place. He's the one who sets them out of reach, and that's what the word stronghold even implies. 
They know, in other words, these armies can't harm them unless God decrees it. They know that unless God allows it, that they will not fall. And yet, even if they do fall, they still know his covenant can't be killed, if you will. They might die, but his promises cannot. The nation will still prevail. God's people will still prevail. In all of it, not one single promise of the Lord will be rendered void by the invading armies that they wait and see. Everything that God has said will come to pass will come to pass. And they know that God is with his people. God is with his people. If he sets them on high, who is any man to come and try and harm them? They rest securely in the sovereign one. They know that no matter what may come, God will still bless his people and accomplish his will. He will even usher in the end of the age to bring his kingdom on earth. They embody a pure sense of triumphalism, but it's not a nationalistic one. And what I mean by that simply is that they're not looking at simply the nation of Israel and saying, look how great Israel is. It's a pure triumphalism in God. The only reason Israel is great is because God is with them. That's it. That's, that's all they're saying here. God is the great one, right? We, we see this so clearly in verses 8 through 11, and they're, they're looking at things in terms of an eschatological or end times note. They're looking at it and saying, look, God will be the one exalted among the rest of the nations of the earth, and he has chosen Israel out of them to be exalted with him. The people of God, the only reason why they're exalted is because the king of kings will be exalted, They know in their heart of hearts that even if they lose the battle, even if all of them die, God will not lose the war. That's the incredible thing. They know they're safe. They're safe. Even if they die, they are safe for all eternity. Nothing can snatch them from the grasp of God. No enemy can destroy his people. No enemy can destroy his promises. No enemy can thwart the promises given to the patriarchs. Every bit of it rests squarely on God. And that is why they are triumphant, because they know God is the one who is utterly faithful. There's an appropriate sense of triumphalism that I think the church ought to have. I think the church, especially as we read Psalms like this one, we ought to have a sense of triumphalism. We are not Israel, and so don't mistake me for saying that somehow America is Israel, or that we're guaranteed the same covenant promises that Israel received because we're not guaranteed all of those. And America is not Israel. But in the grand scheme of things, our nation is simply one of many nations that will rise and fall, but the one thing that will never fall are the people of God. Everything else is a grand experiment. The church shall rule and reign with Christ forever guaranteed. You and I might die an early death. We might be sent as martyrs to the slaughter. We might suffer unimaginable hardships. We might lose everything. And yet the one thing you and I cannot lose is God. We cannot lose him. In the midst of it all, he remains a steadfast hope and he plants us firmly in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we will not be shaken. The sense of triumphalism we hold is not in our nation, our families, or even our particular church, but the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. We triumph ultimately because God is the sovereign one over all things, and he will not let his bride suffer harm. He will bring her into the kingdom, and that kingdom will exude through all of the earth. Even if we die, we simply are carted off to eternal life. Even if we are sent as martyrs, we are given a crown. If we suffer hardships and adversity, we will be rewarded in heaven beyond our wildest imaginations. If we simply endure to the end. And yet every single definable moment in history, from creation ex nihilo to the end of all days, is hurtling towards the reality when Christ returns. It's hurtling towards this reality where God will subdue every single enemy under his foot and make an end to all that plagues us and make all things new. The ultimate reason why we don't fear is not simply because God is in our midst, in the midst of natural disaster, and not simply that God is our confidence in the midst of man-made or political and social disaster, but that God has guaranteed the outcome. 
He has guaranteed the outcome. All events, all nations, all history will fall in line with his decree. And so he calls attention now to literally all the earth. The psalmist looks at not only the Israelites, but also the people that are making an uproar. And look at what he says in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. It's a double command in verse 8. Come and behold. But it's, it's not a mere cry to pay attention. He's, he's just proclaimed certain doom. He's saying, for all those who came to fight against Jerusalem, look, you need to pay attention. The Lord who stands in Israel's midst is poised to act, and all the world will see the weight of his fury. The depiction he gives, again, immediately moves to the end of all days, where all sin, all evil, and in this case, all warfare is done away with. But notice how quickly it's resolved. Notice how certainly this outcome will happen. Verse 9. Present tense, guys. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. The way he proclaims this is in the present perfect tense. He looks at all these things as if they've already happened. right? So though they're surrounded on every side and the battle is even perhaps underway, the implements of warfare, he says, are utterly decimated. The way the Hebrew expresses them is if they've been destroyed, as if... Literally nothing is left of them when the Lord has judged the earth. The bow is shattered. The spear is rendered useless. No weapon of war stands. And he says in the same breath, those warriors, by the way, useless as well. The chariots consumed by fire. There's, there's literally nothing left. Even the ashes blown away at this point. Everything that's attached to them, everything that's attached to war is a distant past. God's total annihilation of all war and even all weapons of war is certain. And it's so certain, in fact, that every corner of the creation, he says, is subdued by peace. In an instant, the chaos, the turmoil that everybody knows so well is finally done. It's finally put to rest. And the cry that all the people need to hear is that the outcome is guaranteed to happen. This is the inevitable reality, guys. Judgment will be total. That's what he's saying, come and behold. Look at the devastations, the desolations he has wrought. No weapons, no enemies, and the implication is certainly clear. If you stand against God himself, God's holy city, God's holy people, this too shall be your fate. No wonder why these guys are confident. The God who makes an end to all of their silly, futile games of war has come to judge, and he says, if you do not yield to him as the supreme one, the supreme Lord, above all, you must foresee that your fate is sealed. He sits in the heavens and laughs. If not, any earthly king will be honored above all. It is the Lord himself who will be highly exalted. All shall bow the knee. Then in verses 10 and 11, this is what he portrays. Cease striving, another double command. Cease striving and know what that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Again, he gives these two commands to everybody. All people on earth, cease striving and know that I am God. The command to cease striving is literally let, let your hands fall slack. Let them drop by your side. Stop. Do nothing. Put an end to war. Drop your weapons of war, O nations. Stop and know that I am God. The reason for this is just as simple, right? The reason why they must stop and know God is, is simple. The outcome is certain. God will put an end to all war. God will put an end to all evil. God will be king. He will be king. Among all nations, all tribes, all tongues, every single corner of the earth, God and God alone shall be exalted. 
There's a rebuke here to the nations, obviously, the ones that are making war, especially with Israel. Every effort that they make to rise up against the people of God will one day be met with a swift and certain judgment, and all shall recognize the King of kings as he sits upon the throne. And yet there's also a slight rebuke to the faint-hearted, too. You think about it, if, if the clarion call is given to an unbelieving world, a world that will undoubtedly see this reality, undoubtedly that the outcome is secure, that God shall win every battle, subdue every enemy, put an end to every bit of warfare, why do they fear? Why are you afraid? It moves well beyond every earthly threat the people of God face to every spiritual threat they face as well. It's not merely that all the evil on this earth shall be subdued by the peace of God as he reigns from his throne, but that death will be a distant memory. Satan himself will be crushed. He'll be destroyed. He'll be cast into the lake of fire forevermore. All those who have ever opposed God and his people, beloved, unless they have repented, will be cast into the lake of fire. They will first be brought to their knees in submission, though. That's the startling reality. But at the end of it all, not a vestige, not a single vestige of this broken, sinful, chaotic world will be left. Not even a little bit. In an instant, a mere word from the Creator, all things will be set right. And therefore, we do not fear. We have no reason to. We of all people know that God's kingdom will come and that it will be eternal. The implications of this are utterly massive, and I mean utterly life-changing if we would just simply apprehend the reality behind it. Think of what is actually guaranteed for those who love God. There's not a single thing in this life that can threaten to undo any bit of what he has promised. And if the psalmist can say this, if the Israelites can say this, when they literally have people trying to kill them, how much more can you and I say this and sing of this beautiful truth in the midst of whatever comes to us in this age? That's not to say that you don't have hardships and sufferings. It is simply saying that if they can say it then, we too, as God's people, can say it with just as much certainty as they did. Beloved, the intensity of your faith is not what will save you. Make no mistakes about it. But it will certainly impact how you navigate this life. There is a constant threat and chaos of sin. The one sure ground we have to stand on is what God has revealed to us in his word, And in light of all that he has said and done and given to us, we have no need to fear. Think of all the different things that you can be tempted in to think that they might free you from your fears, that they might free you from your worries or your depressions or your anxieties or whatever else that ails you in this broken and sinful world. Beloved, when you do that, you're placing your hope and confidence in something other than God, and it cannot deliver. It cannot help you in that way. God is the very basis, the very source of our strength and hope. He is the one who fills us up with these things, in other words. And it's not simply in the big things, but in the everyday things of life that we are faced with. Every day. Let me, let me put it a different way. If God is all sovereign, if God is all powerful, if he guarantees to rid the world of evil, is he not sufficient to give you comfort and peace in the midst of your depression, anxiety, or your worries, or anything else that ails you? Will you turn to something else? Will you see that God is your sole, only resource, and that it is enough? Again, the outcome is secure. The outcome is unchanging. It is grounded not in your personal faith, not in the faith of the collective body at Missio Dei Fellowship, not in the faith of the church at large, but in the covenant that God has sworn. The outcome is secure. It rests entirely on his faithfulness. The reason we do not succumb to fear of anything or anyone is not because of us. It is purely because of God. It's purely by the grace of God that we can come to do so, but it is purely by his covenant promises. Do you believe that you serve a God who cannot 
fail. Not who will not fail, that's undoubtedly true, but a God who cannot fail. Look at the world and how it literally rages at every turn. It rages over everything. Political unrest, social unrest, natural unrest, they're raging and raging and raging over everything. And do you join them in the raging or is your hope secure in Christ? When the next political disaster takes place, will you flip out like everybody else? Or will you look at it and say, Christ is supreme, and you know what, guys? You need to hear about him. Because all of this stuff is going away one day. None of it will last. All of it will be burned up by fire. And the one sure reality is not that our nation stands, but that judgment is coming. The one sure reality is that God will subdue every enemy under his foot. And yet the other sure reality is that if they are in Christ, they are not his enemies. Our priorities are so messed up. I'm sorry, I'm not. There are people literally being carted off to hell every single day. Every day. We have a hope to give them. Verse 11, he says, The Lord of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is is our stronghold. It's triumphal once again. The reason for this is simple. God is in control of all things and his promises are are certain. Everything that's stable may topple. Everything that we trust in in this earth may fall into the hearts of the sea, but he is the great unmovable one who dwells among his people. Though the nations rage again, they do so in vain. God is the one who will take the throne in the end. One great day, beloved, he will make an end to all warfare and all that plagues us. He will be the rightful ruler above all things. Just as the Israelites could say in a very, very beautiful way that the God of Jacob is our stronghold, you and I, if you are in Christ, can say this too. Nothing can touch us. In the beginning of the service, you heard a hymn a famous hymn that many people simply love, and that is from Martin Luther called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That hymn was based on this psalm. Martin Luther picked up this psalm and he read it in the midst of a broken and chaotic life that only he could have. And he penned those beautiful words we sang today. Here was a man who was hunted down by the papacy. Do you know what he said as a result of them hunting him? Cut off my head. I serve a God who can give me a new one. (laughs) Only Martin Luther, folks. But in the midst of that, he also is a guy who is literally standing in the midst of social upheaval. You have Charles, King Charles, I think the fifth or the sixth, who is literally leading a battle against the peasants. The peasants are dying everywhere. These people in authority are dying. The bubonic plague is happening all around him. He and his wife, Katie, open up a hospital in their home to treat the people with the plague. His daughter had literally just died. And as he's burying her, all of these things come flooding out of his heart and mind. And he pens, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Though all may fall into chaos and disarray, the only thing that Luther put his hope in was the fact that God is sovereign over it all and the outcome for those who love God is secure. If you think about it, when that all happens, what do you have left to trust in on this earth? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And what does Luther do? He writes a battle hymn, a hymn of triumph, a hymn of great confidence because he knows God is faithful He says, only God's kingdom is eternal. And though everything else may fall and fail, God cannot and will not. And gosh darn it, I trust that. And I love that truth. I will not even fear what Satan can do. As I conclude all of this, and I I bring everything back to full circle, if you will, I want to simply draw your 
attention to the, you know, basically the two commands that he gave us in this passage. Now, if you're not in Christ today, this passage is directly applicable to you, but not in the hopeful and encouraging way. For you, this psalm ought to be one where you contemplate the absolute unavoidable certainty that all of history is moving towards the day of judgment when Christ returns and he brings peace. But that peace is not for you. That peace only comes through the subdual of his enemies and through the defeat of his enemies. And make no mistakes about it. If you are not in Christ, the scriptures say you are an enemy of God. You will be defeated. You can mock, you can jeer, you can revile the things of God for the rest of your life. You can spit upon the face of your parents, your children, or your spouse, or your friends, or whomever else is trying to just plead with you to believe the gospel. You can live in abject rebellion all the rest of your days, but the one reality that will never change is the outcome that awaits all mankind. Christ shall reign. Well, the command to you is to literally halt in your tracks and know that he is God. Make no mistake, it's, it's a rebuke in the text specifically for you. There will be no excuse on that day. You will not be able to say you were not warned. God will have victory. You will bow the knee along with everyone else in all creation. And yet it will not be under the extreme pleasures of his grace unless you repent and trust in Christ. It doesn't have to be judgment. It doesn't have to be that way. You can be counted among God's people if you would simply humble yourself and confess your sins and trust in Christ and Christ alone for forgiveness. But he brings so, so much more. If you are in Christ, beloved, you need not fear anything. Nothing. In Christ's death, he didn't simply accomplish our redemption and free us from the consequences to sin that we so rightfully deserve. He literally rescued us from every single foe. Every foe. He is the victorious one. He went to battle and put sin and death and Satan under his foot. And when he returns, there will be a decisive final victory that comes with a mere word, just as this psalm foretells. The outcome is secure. You look to the book of Revelation, it is the most anticlimactic battle of all time because it's just done. God's people knew this long before Christ even came upon the scene in history, and we know it all the more since that day. God will be exalted in all the earth, and all we must do is simply wait for that lovely day. We need not fear in the midst of the chaos we know so well. We need not fear the sin, the death, the political power grabs everything. He is the sovereign. In every aspect of life, in times of hardship and ease, day by day, God is bringing about the end of this age. This age will be swallowed up, but it will be swallowed up in complete victory as God creates all things new and ushers in his eternal kingdom. And so I leave you with this simple thought. If God is for you, and he is if you're in Christ, if God is for you, what can possibly stand against you? He will bring you securely into his presence, and you will have nothing but the fullness of joy as you rule and reign. You literally will rule and reign with Christ. He will be exalted above all others, and yet you will be granted a position of authority beyond your wildest imaginations, and that's fairly crazy. You'll judge angels. No more death, though, no more pain, no more suffering, just pure, unadulterated bliss and joy in the presence of your king. All of that is what we stand to inherit and more. There's things we don't even know that we will get in heaven. But the most beautiful treasure of all is Christ. Keep that reality close to your heart, ever before your eyes. Let it bring you comfort knowing that whatever may come your way, be it world-ending judgment be it complete political and social chaos or even just the chaos of your own life that happens sometimes. That the most high God is your God. You are his people. If you are in Christ, 
at the end of all days, you shall not be moved. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for just the incredible peace and security and comfort and joy and everything else that you have given us in Christ, that we are safe and secure from all harm, that even if in this life we may be faced with death, that the outcome is secure. We know that we shall be immediately whisked away into your presence and shall never, ever, ever experience just the chaotic world we know and live in and the power of sin and our enemy, Satan. We are looking forward to that day when Christ returns. Oh, Father, we are so eager. We wait for you, Lord. But may we wait with much confidence and trust, knowing that that day is secure, knowing that if we do not see it in our lives, that it nonetheless will come, that this is a hope that you have granted your church since its very beginning because Christ has secured it. Father, may we not be tempted to fool ourselves and think that the kingdoms of this earth will deliver us, that the kingdoms of this earth will pursue righteousness as only Christ can. May we instead believe and hope in the fact that this grand experiment that we call governance in our world will one day submit under the rulership of Christ. But I pray in the midst of that, that you would give us wise rulers, rulers who fear you, rulers who will joyfully bow the knee now, and that in our land you might bring peace so that the gospel may go forth. Not so that we might be comfortable, but so the gospel might go forth. Father, I pray for your people, my brothers and sisters, that you would strengthen them. I do not know what days lay ahead for us all, but strengthen us with only the power that you can give us. Cause us to trust in your word and to your faithfulness, that we might impart that to a broken world that desperately needs to hear it, but that in all things, Father, we would not lose the hope that is set before us. May we run this race well for your glory and for your praise. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.